Hey folks, it's Mike Casey here, and you're listening to Digging Those Ditches, the weekly ramblings of an Irish archaeologist. Hey folks, and welcome to this episode of Digging Those Ditches. How are things? It's me, Mike Casey, here again as usual, and uh, thanks for tuning in for another episode. I'm uh, recording this actually while I'm away, so I was going to do it over the weekend uh, back in that loan, but I'm up here in Sligo now at the moment, uh, working up here for a few weeks, and uh, brought all the gear up with me, so where I have to record at this time. So I had a great weekend when I was home, uh, most specifically, I had a great Saturday. Uh, a friend, uh, friend of mine asked me to help him out uh, at a Heritage Week event, uh, Dig It, which was a, an archaeological dig for... Uh, for, for kids to give them an idea of what we do so we just set up some boxes with some with some soil in it and uh, we hid some some skeletons and some other treasures within uh, within in the soil and uh, it was uh, my friend Alan Alan Healy he's an archaeologist as well that I did that with and uh, it was a good event you know it was aimed at uh, kids from about 5 to 12 years of age and it was good fun we did it at Lockheed Forest Park uh, just outside of Boyle if uh, you've never been there definitely try and check it out I I really it was the first time I was there and it's just such a beautiful location you know there's a, lots to see and do in it as well there's a big lake there and you go out for a boat rise there's a castle nearby on the water uh, and there's an old Protestant church on the on the estate because it's obviously an old uh, Protestant estate that this uh, forest park is built on uh, and it's, it's just gorgeous gorgeous scenery and just a, a gorgeous location to to check out so if yeah if you get a chance head up to Lockheed Forest Park uh, and uh, also the people there were were really helpful and really good helped to set up and stuff and they were uh, they were delighted to have us on site for the day and it was it was really good to work with them and uh, you know that's what heritage week was all about uh, last week was giving people an idea how uh, how archaeology and history and heritage in ireland how it's recorded and how it's worked and and uh, you know what archaeology is there and what history is is here in ireland and to promote that and you know i i really hope that uh, i really hope you got a chance to to get out and to to take part in some of the events, uh, you know, nationwide. Uh, I really, you know, as I've said, I, I recommended it on the last few episodes of the podcast, so I hope you got out and you, you got involved. There was some great stuff going on. My my hometown in Loch Ray uh, had a medieval festival again on the on the Saturday just gone by, and uh, it seems like it was a great success. I didn't get a chance to get down to it, but uh, yeah, uh, it, just, it was a good week for, for heritage and history in Ireland. So, uh, like I said, hope you got out and got to see some of it. Uh, secondly, as I said, I've been, I'm up here in Sligo now at the moment, uh, staying just in a little village outside of Boyle, uh, just over the, the over the border in Sligo from Roscommon. And uh, can I just say, like, uh, what a landscape. It's absolutely fantastic up here. You've got just such a range. I'm uh, staying in a small little village just on the edge of uh, Loch Arrow, and it's absolutely fantastic to look at. Uh, you've got all the hills and the, the mountains around here, and uh alan last week uh, we we took a little trip we went to a lecture for uh heritage week given on the site that i currently find myself working on uh we went up to a lecture about it uh done by uh, one of the one of the directors on site brian uh, i'm not actually sure what brian's second name is so i can't give him the name drop but but yeah that was good fun and uh and as i say we we took a trip up around sligo and just oh my god the landscape up around here is brilliant you know we went out to strand hill and had a bite to eat out there 
it's it's just gorgeous around this this side of the country uh what else then is happening well not a whole lot of the same just i'm up here and i'm working away and uh also oh yeah the, the other the other big thing the big thing for me i suppose but uh it was cool to see uh the the dog skull that i talked about finding uh when i uh, did episode nine when i talked about dogs and cats in medieval ireland that was inspired by this uh this uh, remains of a dog that we came across on the last site I worked at in Kildare. Uh, it actually, it was in the Sunday Times uh, in Ireland uh, for Sunday the 27th of August. Uh, there was a little write-up on it. Uh, so it was pretty cool to see uh, your work being talked about. Uh, you know, I, I didn't get a name drop, you know, I'm not that important. That's uh, it's the price you pay for working in commercial archaeology as an archaeologist. You know, everything is... everything is the property of uh, the director of the company who carried out the excavations. So uh, I, unfortunately, I didn't get a name job, but it's still nice to know that that, uh, that it appeared in uh, the national newspaper. So I'll, I'll take that little bit of fame if I can. So now that I've had my talk and, uh, you know, given you, given you my uh, new claim to fame that I was a site I worked on, not even not even me myself was in the newspaper, just, uh, just a dig I was involved in. Um, I suppose we can move on now and, uh, you know, move on to our subject for today's podcast i'm going to keep it kind of short for two reasons first of all i'm i'm doing this away from home so not in my usual comfort zone and don't have everything around me that i normally have while recording the podcast and secondly also uh i forgot to bring the charger for my laptop up <laughs> so uh don't know how long the battery's going to last on this hopefully i'll get the episode recorded and uh, i get it up and uh i'll try and get my charger during the week or try and figure something out because i'm hoping to get uh the current uh, project archaeologist for the site I'm working on, I'm hoping to have him on for the next episode of the podcast, which should be long fairly quickly at the end of this week, or else if, uh, if I can't get my hands on the charger, uh, I, will, uh, I will have him on the show next week. So, yeah, let's, let's get on with the show today, so folks. So the subject I want to talk about today is the Great Famine. But it's it's not the Irish Great Famine, you know. It's not the Gertha Moor, the Great Hunger that dominates nineteenth-century Irish history. You know that 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 period. It's uh, it's actually a famine that occurred a lot lot earlier, but is also known as the Great Famine, and it's the Great Famine of thirteen fifteen to thirteen seventeen. This Great Famine is it's hugely important to hugely important to the the development of Europe, uh, moving on from the high medieval period into the I suppose the, the late medieval and to, into the the early modern period in Europe. Uh, this this event was, was was hugely important to that uh, for a number of reasons. And there, the, I came across it. I'm not actually sure where I really came across this at first. I I, I think I was reading something about the Battle of Creasy, and uh, you know, the, which was a battle during the Hundred Years' War, and it just popped up. I I came across it somewhere uh, because the Battle of Creasy was seen as like a the kind of the, the, the change from the shri- chivalrous period of, uh, of medieval warfare. And it came around the same time as, as this great famine of 1315 to 17. And, and also like, you know, the Black Death came a couple of decades after this as well. And the changing phase of warfare, these, th- this famine in 1315 and, and the, the later arrival of uh, the bubonic plague or the Black Death are seen as some of the most important and influential reasons for why Europe uh, changed 
you know, away from this feudal system and moved into the, the modern era and, you know, it saw the collapse of that feudalism and, you know, the collapse of the, the, old, the old order, really. So that's why I, I just want to, that's why I want to talk about it because of its importance and just, you know, as I say, as usual, I'm just going to give you a, a heads up over what the subject itself is about and you can go check out, there's, there's, there's plenty of research on it and uh, it's, it's just a very interesting period for a number of reasons. Uh, uh, the effects, uh, obviously, are, are, are a reason that makes it so interesting, you know, what happened during this period. Also, some of the causes or the possible causes thereof uh, are very interesting and are intriguing to look at. And uh, finally, some of the some one or two bits of the folklore that have grown up out of this this great famine in the mid fourteenth century, or it's sorry, in fact, in the early fourteenth century, um, some of the folklore that's grown up out of it is it's very interesting, and it's folklore that at least one of the stories you will definitely recognise. So the great famine of thirteen fifteen to thirteen seventeen, it affected primarily northwestern Europe, uh, even though it did hit central europe as well and uh and the knock and there were knock-on effects you know moving into uh moving further east into russia and also uh it, it did have a knock-on effect on the mediterranean region even though for the most part this this famine was contained uh in northwestern europe as i say and kind of the boundary from where it stopped is really the Pyrenees and the Alps. So, you know, as you move south into Spain and Italy from uh, places like France and Germany and, you know, England and Ireland further north, uh, as you came over the Pyrenees and the Alps, it wasn't as severe. It was more just the knock-on effects of it uh, that caused some trouble in these areas. So the causes for this, uh, for this famine was really bad weather. So in the spring of 1315, there was a lot, a lot of rain in Europe. And this had come at the end of a period uh, known as the medieval warm period, which was probably around pre-1300. But since then, uh, weather conditions in Europe had been deteriorating. Uh, you know, I, I haven't looked into what a lot of the reasons for this uh, deterioration in the weather, but the medieval warm period is something that's very interesting to read about as well. As I say, it was a period uh, of obviously warm weather, which uh, made it possible for Europe's population to, to grow rapidly. And because of that, you know, there's a lot of food production because of the good weather, which meant that you could support bigger families and, and people live to an older age. So there was a, a nice period there in the medieval period uh, or during the medieval age when uh, when Europe was doing was doing pretty all right. But as I said, this bad weather, uh, which really kicked off in the spring of 1315, caused huge crop failures. And this these crop failures would really continue uh, it right up until about 1317 so famines were actually quite common in medieval Europe at the time but they were usually small localized famines you know if uh, there was bad weather in a particular area uh, it would cause uh, you know it would cause these famines uh, especially with the fact uh, the way society was was made up you know priority was given mostly to the the elite in society so you had your lords and your kings and your your aristocracy and also to the clergy so the church uh, they they took a lot of a lot of these supplies and a lot of these a lot of the food that was produced in europe was was hoarded by these 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 two elements the the elite aristocracy and the clergy 
it's interesting to see the makeup of society at the time. If if you were just uh, your your peasant, uh, landed worker, uh, you, you you really it was a, it was a tough life. You know, you struggled and you just you did the best you could to just feed yourself and and it was quite common as I said for for famines to occur if there was a low crop yield and so as I say famines were quite common in the medieval period uh, and life was hard this as I said got worse in the spring of 1315 with this really bad weather now what's kind of cool or you know what's interesting one of the possible causes of this could actually be now I don't know how out there this theory is but I thought it was very interesting and you know there is a lot of work out there if you look around about the effect of weather on societies and you know obviously a lot of societies have been affected by changing climate but uh this was this climactic change uh in 1315 may have actually been triggered by a volcanic event in new zealand and it's crazy to think that something as simple as that could have affected most of northwestern europe and you know brought on this huge period of torrential rain which uh, caused massive uh, carnage in northwestern Europe because of food stocks. So with the rain in 1315 this meant that uh, it became impossible almost to harvest um, the wheat which was used for making bread which was you know your main staple uh, for peasants during the medieval period and it also meant that you couldn't you couldn't dry the fodder uh, for livestock so it also had a knock-on effect on that so you had no food for your livestock and then you also had no no grain to make bread um the main way of curing meat at the time uh, would have been salt and that got really expensive also because how you get salt is you you extract it from brine and it's very hard to do that in wet conditions so salt became very very expensive so again that had an effect on the poor the poorest of the poor in populations so they couldn't feed their animals uh, particularly you know you, you're very reliant on your draft animals for for plowing the soil and things like that back then uh, you couldn't feed yourself and you also couldn't buy salt to preserve any of the livestock that you might possibly have been able to kill off because of this then also you know the prices of bread you know some of the farmers maybe who were working at a base level might have been able to put something aside for themselves but you know the people who are dependent on this grain uh they're nearly at a worse condition than the farmer themselves in some cases. And in France, in parts of France, uh, the price of bread or the price of wheat to even make the bread had, had risen about 300%, which is a massive rise. You know, if you think about it, if something go, you know, if something's a euro and suddenly it's four euros, like that's a big change. You know, if something's a hundred euros, it's 400 euros. So it's a, it's, it's a huge jump in prices. And uh, this would have, that would have started having the effect, especially in the towns. So this famine wouldn't have been just uh, centralized on the smaller farmers uh, that you might expect, you know, that they, that they would struggle. It actually probably had nearly a worse effect on those people living in towns and cities in medieval Europe at the time. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, the, the makeup of society and the kind of uh, the elite aristocracy and the clergy, they were also, as I said, they, they, they hoarded stores of wheat and grain and and all these sort of crops and that really had a huge effect as well because they would always be looked after first whereas you know your everyday man on the street or your everyday peasant on the street they're going to be overlooked and you know the aristocracy back then didn't have an awful lot of care and the clergy kind of had its own maneuverings 
uh, during the medieval period. Uh, it was involved in its own maneuverings of power and uh, it didn't really have an awful lot of time especially the higher up in the clergy didn't really have an awful lot of time for your everyday peasant who might have been struggling to feed his family. The Great Famine then in Europe it continued into 1316 and it obviously it got worse and worse because you know you're running out of any any grain or wheat that you have uh, so you're starting to kill off your livestock and your draft animals so as I say it's a short-term thing to kill your livestock and your draft animals but if you can't feed them you might as well kill them so it was a short-term uh, source of food uh, also they started eating the seed grain uh, which is you know this is the grain that's used for actually planting the harvests so they were getting such a little yield back or to at the point where there was no yield at all coming back from the crops that they had planted that they actually started eating the seed that they probably should have been sowing uh, for the next one for the next uh, for the next harvest which you know you're shooting yourself in the foot there it also saw a couple of other interesting um, little side stories uh, first was the abandoning of children became very very common you know so you know like if you have quite a big family and and you you can't you can't feed them like obviously you it was became very common for people to just let kids children uh fend for themselves and you know a form of natural selection maybe started to creep in uh also there is was examples that i came or, or well, not necessarily examples not specific examples i came across but uh some of the research shows that old people were actually voluntarily abstaining from eating food uh to give the younger generations a chance now, when I say older generations, I'm talking about people in their 30s, don't forget, because this is the medieval period and your life expectancy isn't that great. And especially during this great famine period, the, the average life expectancy was really about, about 29 years of age, as far as I'm aware. Uh, also, it seems cases of cannibalism uh, were on the rise, you know, the eating of other human beings, it became quite common. And just general lawlessness in the period seems to have increased. It seems to have been a very dark time in Europe and unlike maybe with the with the Black Death or the bubonic plague in you know a couple of decades later something that's interesting about it is the Black Death kind of came in and took its toll very quickly and very sharply whereas you know this this famine dragged on and, and caused a lot of suffering over a number of years and really in Europe it wasn't until the middle of the 1320s that Europe properly started to recover from the effects of this as I said, a lot of the seed stock had been eaten. Uh, you also had the, the killing of draft animals and also the population decrease. You know, there was millions of people killed during this famine. And, you know, up to, I think it's 10 to 20, 10 to 15% of the population of Northwestern Europe was wiped out. So you've, you have a labor shortage there. You have, a, you have a seed shortage and you also have a livestock shortage for, for trying to get that agriculture back and up and running and being productive again. So as I say, it wasn't until about 1325 that Europe really recovered from this this famine, which is that's a, that's nearly ten years. That's a decade of of prolonged trouble and suffering in Europe before the effects started to wear off. Now the long term effects of the Great Famine of thirteen fifteen to thirteen seventeen, uh, as I said, as I mentioned earlier, it saw a huge increase in crime and just the general dark nature. That we associate with medieval Europe you know there was a certain high period which coincided really with as I said this medieval warm period where 
culture did flourish to a certain extent within the confines of time uh, in Europe, but this really saw lawlessness and brigandage really take to the fore again in Europe, and, and Europe became a lot rougher of a place to live and to try and, you know, make a life in. Uh, you know, it's, it's not surprising that uh, now I know uh, the story of Robin Hood, there's many origins of it, but it's not surprising that that type of story of, of Robin Hood uh, comes from this style of this type of period. Uh, also, it had some effects on, on, on warfare and government also. Uh, in, in warfare, as I said, just the general darker nature and the general rougher nature of Europe after this famine, uh, the kind of anarchy it descended into for a couple of years, had a knock-on effect long-term and coincides really with the end of, of the chivalrous period of warfare in Europe. And, and wars really became a lot more aggressive and a lot more, a lot more modern in the terms of like casualties and you know you're starting to see greater numbers of those killed you're starting to see less of uh, the kind of fanciful nature of, of warfare as i said this this shiver, chivalrous period uh, in warfare where nobles you know very rarely died in battle you know it became more cutthroat as the years went on uh, secondly as i said uh, it, it had some changes on the way people began to rule themselves and how they how much input they felt they deserved in ruling themselves the, the those in power really were very slow to react and to to put into effect plans to ease the suffering of uh, people affected by this great famine and because of that they lost a lot of respect from these people and you know peasant revolts probably became a bit more common uh, people started really realizing that the aristocracy had you know although even for centuries afterwards they were still considered an elite the aristocracy it did it, it did change people's perceptions of of how they were governed and and who was governing them with the breakdown of the feudal system really after the the black death a couple of decades later um this this had already kind of this had already put people on the track where they were getting a little bit disaffected with uh, the nobility during the medieval period and as I said, I know nobility and aristocracy continued for many centuries after that and, you know, still exists today in some sense. But, you know, they, as I said, they lost a lot of the trust of the common man uh, with their slow reaction to, to helping out during this famine period. And finally, the, the church especially was hit pretty hard. Now, it would be another couple of hundred years, really, before the, the true vices of the church would be called out by Martin Luther. But... It, it began the waning of the control and the the untouchable position that the church had within medieval society uh, as, I, as I keep mentioning this this famine was was tied in in terms of its uh, its long-term effects uh, with the Black Death and the church really was beginning to lose power and people were beginning to come become far more secular in terms of the way they conducted their lives uh, you see that especially moving into the Renaissance period, which was really in Italy especially was a, was a direct result of the Black Death and the, the change in society because population numbers were so down that workers became more valued, which means they got higher paid and uh, a new uh, a new class emerged in medieval Europe, uh, which kind of 
spread out of, of Italy into certain areas and you know uh, it spread better in certain some areas than others you know France remained fairly feudal for a little bit longer than other countries but um, it's interesting to note that that the Great Famine really did have an effect on the superiority and the popularity of the church because at the end of the day people people believed so devoutly in Roman Catholicism at the time that they felt like they had been let down by the church the fact that this you know a lot of people see this as an act of god and you know why would god treat them like this if their church was leading them you know along the right path well a lot of people started to question maybe the church wasn't leading them along the best of paths and maybe it was the vices and the behavior of the church that had brought this this uh this famine on them as a as a punishment from god so the popularity and the the control of the church really was beginning to wane um in the aftermath of this great famine of 1315 to 1317 something else i just want to mention actually was a direct result of the great famine in ireland so edward the bruce who was the brother of robert the bruce uh who you know the famous scottish patriot who defeated the english um Edward the Bruce invaded Ireland in an attempt to make himself the High King of Ireland uh, during this period. And he was quite successful in a number of early engagements against the British. But in the end, the famine hit Ireland quite hard, especially around the cities uh, that Edward was targeting. And uh, even in the countryside as well, you know, and Ireland, you know, as I always mention, is very, uh, very unstable when it comes to weather conditions anyway. So if you're having a particularly... Uh, a, period, a particular period of heavy rain uh, Ireland is going to get hit and because of that Ireland was hugely affected by this great famine and Edward the Bruce during his invasion of Ireland eventually had to withdraw because he just couldn't find enough food on the island to feed his army to keep them marching and to keep attempting to push the English out of Ireland so that's a little story of how the great famine affected Ireland and uh, Ireland's history it was a very macabre period, it seems, when you read about it. As I said, you have this increase in, in lawlessness and uh, cannibalism, and you have you know people leaving their children out to be you know to die of starvation, and you know even the the killing of uh, of babies and young children, you know, because it was just an extra mouth to feed, became quite common. So as I said, it's a very dark and and very gothic period in European history, and I had never come across it before actually until until I first started reading about it uh, so i definitely suggest checking it out uh i mentioned earlier also that uh certain folk tales arose out of this period in europe and in particular one that is associated with the great famine is the story of hansel and gretel so obviously the story of hansel and gretel is they're led into the they're led into the forest and abandoned by their parents and uh they come across this witch who has a house made of cakes and they go eat it and uh, but that is all that kind of dark story uh, comes out of this period when as I say people were, were quite commonly leaving their children to fend for themselves so you can see how the story of Hansel and Gretel can fit into the narrative of the Great Famine uh, and also you know you have that dark gothic element of, the, of there being a witch in the story of Hansel and Gretel and you know uh, they go into the forest which you know Europe was a lot more heavily forested back then so maybe a lot of the times that's where you would have dumped your children if you didn't want them to return home so yeah i think that i think that's cool the way 
folklore has grown up out of this as well and something as you know a common household tale like uh, the story of Hansel and Gretel is actually connected to this huge historic event that left a marked effect on Europe I really enjoyed uh, reading about it as I say it was very interesting and uh, I'm sorry I didn't actually go into more detail but as I said I'm doing this kind of off the cuff uh, away from home but uh, you should definitely try and read up a little more on the great famine of 1315-1317 in Europe. Hope you enjoyed that, folks. A uh, suggestion I want to give you on today's show is actually uh, a, a TED Talk. It's a little 18-minute TED Talk. Uh, it's available on YouTube, and it's by uh, Graham Hancock. Now, Graham Hancock, within the archaeological uh, and historical community, is a man who hugely divides opinion, and personally, I don't know where I stand on his a lot of his theories. He's come up with some, you know, hugely wild theories about uh, human uh, cultures and societies in the ancient world and how they developed. And uh, I, to be honest, I'm not, I'm not hugely into his work, so I haven't read too much into it, but. At the same time, I find him a very charismatic person and someone who is definitely willing to to question the norm and to to push other ways of looking at things. But the video I want to suggest today actually doesn't really concern his archaeology much, even though it does talk a little about uh, how societies have come to view, shall we say, consciousness and also like uh, our reliance on technology and just the way we live our lives. Uh, in general nowadays compared to how we lived it in the past uh, and how we went about understanding our lives uh, and it's a video about DMT life after death and consciousness uh, it's available on YouTube so if you type in Graham Hancock and just uh, type in uh, DMT and consciousness I'm sure it'll come up but uh, it's just a very thought-provoking I thought 18 minute talk and well worth well worth giving a listen to I think Maybe a little bit, a little bit out there compared to many of my suggestions on previous podcasts, but uh, it really did, it really did intrigue me that much that I'd like to, not necessarily say that, you know, I bought totally into it, but you know, I'd like to get maybe some of your opinions on it and see what other people talk, you know, try and start a little bit of a dialogue maybe. So, you know, get in touch if you do watch the video and let me know what you thought of it. Uh, I'd, I'd like to to see what other people made of it all. So that's it for this week's episode of the podcast. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I've enjoyed recording it up here in the in the wilds of Sligo, and uh, you know I'll be back back home next weekend, and I uh, I'll try and get another episode done this time before I leave, so I have more of my equipment and stuff around me, and hopefully I'll have my my laptop charger next time. Uh, also, as I said, I w- I'm hoping to have uh, Shane Delaney, uh, no relation to Thomas Delaney, who we recently had in the show, but I'm hoping to. Uh, to get Shane on the podcast this week or next week, depending on how the charger situation works out. And uh, also, I want to give one more suggestion and just a little shout out to someone else doing some work in in archaeology and trying to promote it and and make it more more current event. Uh, you know the work we do as archaeologists and also you know just history in general, which is what I'm trying to do with this podcast. Check out YouTube videos called Dig It with Raven. Uh, 
So she's a Canadian archaeologist who does these uh, videos, again, concerning archaeology and uh, the roots of archaeology, where it comes from. And uh, it's only a few episodes in, but uh, it's definitely it's got great potential and it's really enjoyable. And you guys should give it a watch and, and uh, you know, give her some support. And uh, it's good to see, as I say, a younger generation of, of archaeologists and historians using new mediums to kind of to promote the study and not just to study, but uh, more to promote the enjoyment of history and archaeology. You know, there's enough people who talk about the study of archaeology and how it should be done and what medium should be used. Let's let's talk about the enjoyment of history and archaeology. Uh, yeah, so as I say, that's that's it for this week's episode. Uh, I know it was a little briefer than, than most weeks and uh, I just kind of, as I say, I winged it this week in terms of my subject. Uh, did my research. I, I didn't have any of my notes or anything on me, so... This is all me just literally rambling away this week. And uh, as usual, if you want to get in touch, uh, it's digging those ditches at gmail.com or, uh, you know, follow us on Instagram uh, or follow the Facebook page. And I'll be back. Uh, I'll be back very soon this time, guys. I won't leave it so long uh, with some more interesting topics on history and archaeology. Uh, and until then, you know, as always, keep digging those ditches. <laughs>